This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Yes, there was quite a bit of important stuff going on in Michigan this past week, as usual, in this most catastrophic year in recent history. There was another protest at the state capitol. Much of it aimed somewhat strangely at the mayor of Lansing. Some of the demonstrators carried weapons, including firearms, but there were no police anywhere in sight. Why not? Because maybe the protesters were aligned with the political left, including many supporters of the murdered African-American George Floyd in Minneapolis last month. Meanwhile, Attorney General Dana Nessel filed suit against the owners of the two dams that were breached by the Titabawasi River last month, causing massive flooding and millions of dollars in damage to homes and property in the Midland area. Still another natural disaster looms. The County Road Association called attention to continued rising water levels around the Great Lakes, causing huge shoreline erosion, particularly on Lake Superior, and threatening entrances to state parks. It will take tens of millions of dollars to fix it all, and even then, we cannot be sure the problem will be solved. There was even activity in the Michigan legislature this week, although none of it is what I would call definitive in its consequences. So I want to take a few minutes to revisit a topic we discussed last week and elaborate on it with respect to Michigan. We talked about the question that nobody has talked about in the news media or otherwise, and that is how many deaths has the economic shutdown over the past three months caused in this country and in Michigan? Could the toll actually be higher than the number of deaths caused by the coronavirus? The short answer is yes, but no one seems to want to talk about it, so I will. You may remember I mentioned three men with impressive credentials as physicians, professors, engineers, and business experts, all affiliated with universities. These academic experts pooled their resources and produced some actual data to put things in a better perspective for us. What they have concluded is this. Statistically, every $17 million lost in U.S. income results in the death of one human being. The main portion of this is through unemployment, which leads to an average increase in mortality of at least 60%, they say. This translates into 65,000 lives lost in the United States for each month because of the economic shutdown in the various states. If the shutdown has been 
ongoing for three months, which it has, that amounts to roughly 200,000 deaths in the U.S. during those three months, right up until today. Compare that figure, 200,000 deaths, with the approximately 120,000 deaths from COVID-19 that has been experienced so far throughout the country. Now, let's bring that home to Michigan. Michigan's approximately 10 million people represent roughly 3% of the nation's population of some 330 million. 3% of 200,000 national deaths is about 6,000 deaths in Michigan, which amazingly is about equal to the number of deaths attributed to the coronavirus in Michigan thus far. So you could say that it's almost a trade-off, a wash. 6,000 deaths in Michigan in either case, from the virus or from a shattered economy, except that the COVID-19 total, as we know, is still rising, and we don't know when it will end or if it will end anytime soon. But wait. There's another factor noted by these experts. Lives are also lost because of delayed or foregone health care imposed by the shutdown and the fear it creates among patients. Neurosurgery clinicians estimate that about half of their patients have not appeared for the past three months for treatment of disease which, left untreated, risks brain hemorrhage, paralysis, or death. Here are some examples of missed health care. First, emergency stroke evaluations are down 40%, 40%. Of the 650,000 cancer patients receiving chemotherapy in the United States, an estimated half are missing treatments. Of the 150,000 new cancer cases, typically discovered every month in the United States, most are not being diagnosed. And at least two-thirds of routine cancer screenings are not happening because of shutdown policies and fear among the population. Nearly 85% fewer donor transplants are occurring now compared with the same period last year. In addition, more than half of the childhood vaccinations are not being performed, setting up the potential of a massive future health disaster. The implication of treatment delays for situations other than COVID-19 amount to more than 500,000 lost years of life per month. That's half a million lost years of life per month, not including all the other known skipped care. Three months times half a million, and we're talking about a million and a half lost years of life during this national lockdown. Now, what does lost years of life mean? It's not the same as someone dying right now because of the virus or because of unemployment and lost income, but it means hundreds of thousands of people eventually are going to die at age, let's say, 35 instead of 60. 
or at 50 instead of 70, or at 75 instead of age 90. If Michigan is 3% of that national total, it means 45,000 lost years of life, which by any calculation is way higher than the 6,000 lives lost in Michigan to this point by the coronavirus. Now, keep in mind that nothing like this has ever happened in the past in this country. In the three 20th century pandemics, all involving flu, those beginning in 1918, again in 1957, and again in 1968, there was never an economic dislocation imposed by governments and public health experts such as we've seen this year. Only the 1918 flu achieved morbidity like what we're seeing with the coronavirus. In 1957 and 1968, the cumulative death toll was roughly the same as what we're seeing so far in 2020. But remember that the population back then was barely half of what it is today, which means that the per capita death rate was far higher in 1957 and 1968 than what we're experiencing now. Those are the facts so far in this unfolding drama. Think about it. I'll be back in a minute with our first guest. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have on the other line with us Mike Kowal, who has done just about everything in politics and government after a successful career as a businessman. He's been a state senator. He's been the Senate uh, majority floor leader while he was in the Senate, before that, state representative. But now he is running for Oakland County Executive. This is the position held for seemingly an eternity by Brooks Patterson, who died last year. He was replaced by a Democrat, Dave Coulter, C-O-U-L-T-E-R. And Coulter has a primary uh, from the county treasurer of Oakland County, Andy Meisner. And whoever wins that primary is going to go up against the Republican nominee. And Mike Kowal hopes that will be him. And he came out with a very impressive list of people who've endorsed him uh, just yesterday, I believe, this week. Uh, Mike Kowal, thanks for joining us on The Political Insider. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Bill. You and I have had many conversations over the years. Absolutely. Well, look, tell me what's going on there. What what are you up against? I mean, for years, Oakland County was a Republican bastion. Now, uh, the only countywide elected office I believe you have left is the county sheriff. That's Mike Bouchard. Every Correct. other countywide elected office is held by a Democrat. You've got a Democratic incumbent who may or may not survive a primary challenge. What does it look like for you 
if you're the Republican nominee and do you have any primary competition? What's going on there? Give us the picture. Well, let's start off with the uh, person that's currently holding the seat of uh, county executive. That was done through a very convoluted, uh, I would say, borderline illegal process that uh, that was perpetrated by some of the, the Democrat members of the county commission. Our county commission currently is uh, it, the majority are Democrats, but it's only by one seat. And I know our uh, our county commissioners are looking to uh, to take that seat back, as well as a couple of other ones. Now you're correct in that the uh, some of the you know the county clerk and a few of the other treasurers, some of the other positions are held by Democrats, and that was done uh, through a you know I would say it was kind of a pushback uh, at the Trump administration because you know Oakland County has some of the most highest, highly educated, uh, you know, sophisticated people uh, in the state of Michigan, uh, next to Grand Rapids in those areas. But we, um, you know, we, we're hoping to see a turnaround and see things go back, uh, go back blue. Uh, Michigan is, uh, you know, considered kind of a, a purple state, and you know, uh, Oakland County's always been very blue. It just has uh, things have changed a little bit here in the past, but that doesn't mean that uh, we can't bring it back to uh, you know Republican-controlled. Well, you mean red, right? Or it's red, always red, been red. red. Yeah. You know, blue, red. blue, or the other <laughs> yeah. party? Blue you don't want the other party. Yeah, you don't want blue. You want red. We want red. Okay, Excuse all right. Me. Okay. Yeah. Well, do you have any kind of primary competition? Well, we have. Uh, there's one fellow that jumped in at the last minute, uh, so we're, um, you know, we're very confident that we're going to be able to, you know, win the primary. As, as you said, I had Governor Snyder, um, uh, Bill Schuette, Mike Cox. Uh, I can go Mike Bishop. I can go on and on uh, of some of the, you know, former elected officials that uh, have endorsed me, along with I believe it was about 85 uh, other local elected officials that are um that are you know basically all red in and and on the uh you know in the northern part in the northern uh western and uh part of the part of the county so i'm i'm building up support you know one at a time and it's uh it's really kind of exciting well without getting into the democratic party uh primary uh that's for another day let me just ask you uh what kind of a job is uh, Dave Coulter doing as the acting or interim county executive? He wasn't elected. He was basically appointed by the Democratic majority and the county board of commissioners, as you pointed out. Uh, what's he doing as county executive that you think is wrong or should be changed? What would you do differently if you get in there? Well, I, I see Mr. Coulter constantly looking to uh, to Lansing and primarily to the uh, the governor's office for direction. And when he's not looking that way, he's looking down towards uh, Detroit. And just recently he was out promoting uh, raising taxes in Oakland County regarding a transportation system, whereas a good portion of the county would uh, would not receive any services. So there was a pure form of taxation without representation, and that's just to begin with. Um, they, he, uh, he allowed people with the COVID virus to be put into uh, nursing homes, 
and I saw that the numbers of people that that contracted the virus and died from the virus was pretty high in those homes that uh, that had to take these uh, the COVID uh, patients. So those are the kind of things right off the top of my head that I can tell you that I see going in the wrong direction. But I think the 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 fact that he's looking to Lansing for direction all the time would tell us that's not where we want to go. One thing that was a hallmark of Brooks Patterson's administrations was high bond rating, uh, financial stability, Oakland County, the wealthiest county in the state, and attracted a lot of investment and business from outside the county, outside the state. Uh, How is that standing now under Dave Coulter? Well, you know, it's hard to tell because I'm not looking at the day-to-day, you know, operations uh, because it's not available to me. But I will tell you that uh, they're spending a lot of money very quickly, and they're spending down our uh, our you know our fund equity, which is in in the, on things like uh, spading uh, you know feral cats and re, and releasing them, buying uh, forty thousand dollar banners and flags uh, for a variety of different uh, purposes, going out and spending money on. A, believe the original order was over 20,000 uh, oak trees. I think they ended up taking delivery on 5,000 oak trees. And I can look right out in my backyard and probably donate, uh, you know, 1,000 oak trees for free. And I just don't understand why they're out spending that kind of money on these frivolous things when we have, you know, COVID virus to deal with. We have uh, an economy that uh, is slowing down. And that's what we need. To, we need to get in there and do just like what Governor Snyder did: get this company, you know, the county turned around and get uh, get these small businesses back back functioning. And you know, we have thirty thousand plus uh, companies here in, in the uh, Oakland, Greater Oakland County area, and they're all hurting right now. And we need to uh, we need to step up to the plate as a county and see what we can do to, you know, help uh, help stabilize them and uh, prop them up. Has the governor's approach on closing down the economy over the last three months been the right approach for Oakland County? And has Dave Colder gone along with that? And we're just out of time. Quick answer. Okay. Well, quick answer, yes. Coulter's gone along with what the governor's trying to do. <laughs> well, I kind of thought that's what you'd say, and that's maybe not too good for business and industry in Oakland County. Look. Mike Cole, we could go on forever talking about this. We'll have you back, and good luck in your campaign. Thank you, Mike Cole, Republican candidate for Oakland County Executive this year. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have with us Steve Hood, And Steve is the host of Detroit Wants to Know, CW50, and he's a political consultant. He is from a very illustrious Detroit family of ministers, politicians, and judges. I mean, this this man has a pedigree, I got to tell you. Steve Hood, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm doing great. Look, what are the biggest stories right now in this political year, 2020, in Detroit, with all this going on? The, uh, you know, George Floyd demonstrations, the coronavirus, and right in the middle of all that, we got a whole bunch of political raises. What do you think? Well, the biggest story, of course, is 
the George Floyd um, protests, what's going on there. And what I'm really waiting to see with them in Detroit, unlike most other cities, you know, Detroit was under a consent decree where our, our police department had to change, and it changed. So I'm waiting. I haven't really seen a headline of that made yet. Like they keep talking about defunding police. Well, that's not exactly going to work in Detroit because we actually want more police. <laughs> I mean, we have – no, no, we, ha- we literally have an underground drug war going on right now. You see, the state sets the price for marijuana, okay, for recreational marijuana and medical marijuana. Its price is higher than the street marijuana, and the street dealers are fighting it out right now. Oh, my God. And that's all taken, that's all taken a back seat because it started, it started getting recognition, started getting noticed, and then COVID hit, and we hit the lockdown, and so it's disappeared. But it's still going on. Wow. Don't, do not be confused. The drug war is still going on in Detroit. Well, is that playing into any of these political races down there? You got countywide races, you got races for the state house of representatives, you've got a big congressional district uh, primary, democratic primary in the 13th district. It's, the whole defund the police thing is only touching the surface in the 13th congressional race. As you know, the sitting congresswoman to has come out and said she wants to defund the police. And, you know, that's just crazy. That's counterintuitive to her district, okay? I mean, it's just totally counter her district. So that's the only place where that really plays in. Now, of course, the whole Black Lives Matter movement is the undercurrent of all of the uh, current election races um, for state house, uh, county commission, uh, and the like. Yeah, well, let me just dig into the 13th District a little bit more. Uh, Rashida Tlaib was elected two years ago to a full two-year term uh, when she was able to squeeze through because she had a whole bunch of African-American candidates also running, and they split the vote up. In fact, Rashida Tlaib actually lost to Brenda Jones, the president of the Detroit City Council, for the partial term of two right. months at the end of 2018, and then she barely beat Brenda Jones for the full two-year term. This time, right. isn't it just Brenda Jones versus Rashida Tlaib? And this is a district that is majority African-American. That's right. Uh, it's just one-on-one. We were very successful in keeping everybody out of the race. And now Brenda Jones, the last poll I saw, which was from in May, Brenda Jones was out ahead of Rashida Tlaib by nine points, okay? It's a very different election, though. Uh, I mean, it's going to be a mail-in vote election. Uh, I'm recommending that everybody I talk to, um, they treat everybody who's 40 years of age and up as an absentee voter and vote and mail to them on the schedule that you would mail to absentee voters, um, whether they traditionally vote at the polls or whether they vote absentee traditionally. Mail to them as if they were absentee. Everybody that's 40 years and up in Detroit. Because generally there are two elections. You mail for your absentee election and you mail for your poll voter election. I'm suggesting everybody 40 years and up be considered an absentee voter and mail early to them. So that would mean at the end of next week, a bunch of people should be sending out mail to people that are 40 years and up. You think a majority of the vote by far is going to be absentee in the Democratic primary in August? 
compared to people who actually show up at the polls? I think so. I think there's still a lot of fear out there of COVID-19. Um, I do not think that people are going to um, want to risk it. I'm personally going to go vote at the polls, but I have my own reasons. Um, I'm going to vote at my poll, at, at my poll, but a lot of people are not going to do that. They're not going to want to do that. And here's the other problem. As you know, there's always a lot of voter apathy in a primary. So with the fear of COVID-19, if these candidates do not turn out the uh, absentee voters, the uh, vote-by-mail voters, if they don't turn them out, we'll have a, uh, tra- we will have a tragically low turnout. Hopefully, everybody's motivated enough to go out and vote. You have a number of interesting state house races down there, particularly uh, you've got an incumbent, Karen Whitsett, in one state house district in Detroit. You'll have to explain where her district is um, in Detroit, uh, who has been sympathetic with uh, the uh, drug <laughs> recommended by President Donald Trump, and she visited him in the White House. She's cozied up to Donald Trump and the Republicans, and that's not going over too well in the Democratic primary, and she's got a serious primary. She's, she's been censored by the 13th Congressional District leadership, by the body of 13th Congressional District. Uh, I believe, no, it's not Rita Ross. Um, the candidate that's running against her. Ogburn, I think her name is. Ogburn, yeah. yes, Ogburn, you know. It's going to take a lot to beat Winsett because Winsett is just out there, out there, out there. But I do believe the drumbeat, the new drumbeat, which is the Internet, is going to eventually uh, take Winsett out. Okay. Yeah. What about, I do believe that's going to happen. What about Joe Tate? Is he in trouble down there for whatever reason? I think he won narrowly last time. against. He the- lost Detroit last time, and he won uh, the points. Okay. Yeah. So he had just enough votes in Detroit and that went in the point that carried him over. The woman that's running against him is a former aide to city council uh, president pro tem, uh, Mary Sheffield. She's a very competent uh, candidate, but there's no white female candidate running. There's a white female candidate running from the points that would split Joe Tate's vote. He would lose. Okay. Because Joe, I mean, he's just. He's just like a bump on the log, not doing anything. Uh, in fact, it's so bad. I even considered running against him, but I'm not ready to retire yet. And I didn't want to drive to Lansing. No, I'm serious. It's, it's that bad. Wow. Uh, he, li- he supposedly lives down the block from me, uh, but we never see him in the neighborhood. Wow. You know? Yeah, and, that's pretty serious. What about other state house races or what about countywide they, races? Any- well, let's go up to state rep three. Very interesting up um, where I call it the land of the intelligentsia. Um, that's the race where she, Shri Thandahar. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Shri Thandahar, uh, Al B.J. Williams, and China Cochran are running. Um, uh, Shri definitely has the money. Al has been out there running for years. Uh, but China Cochran, upstart, has gotten the Emily's List endorsement. The voter base up there is a majority woman voter base. So if they're paying attention, those two guys will have, will have a, a bit of a problem with China Cochran. Let's go over to um, State Rep 7. State Rep 7, you have Helena Scott um, running out there. She is uh, a former aide to a congressperson. That one's going to be hot. Uh, State Rep 8, 
you have Stephanie Young, Reggie Reg Davis, and a couple other people running in that in that race, where Stephanie Young is the only woman. The other interesting race is the seat vacated by uh, the horrible, horrible passing of Isaac Robinson. And the way that that race is split up right now, you may see your first state representative from Hamtramck come out of it because the race is so split up, so segmented in Detroit. Now, I'll just mention Isaac Robinson tragically died this spring. Uh, yes. Supposedly because of coronavirus, we're not sure. But, but that's his, what it was. Yeah. His, his seat is uh, vacant for partial term, and then also there's a full term. Look. We could go on and on about this. You've done a great job of summing things up. I want to really thank you, Steve Hood. We'll get you back. Thanks so much. Steve Hood from Detroit wants to know. And political consultant. Thanks, Steve. We'll be back in a minute. All right. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back and with all this discussion about the hammering that the Michigan economy has taken in the last three months, particularly in the hospitality industry. Uh, We have got a guest today who's right in the center of it. John McNamara is vice president for government relations with the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association, John McNamara, thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having me this morning, sir. Well, John, um, the hospitality industry has a whole bunch of groups representing various component parts of it. I mean, you know, the Michigan Licensed Beverage Association, Michigan Spirits Association, but yours is Restaurant and Lodging Association. Who do you represent? How many members do you have? How old is the organization? Tell us about it. Sure. So we were originally founded uh, in 1921 uh, to serve and enhance the nature of the growth and development of Michigan's food service industry. Uh, so we, for a long time, we were just the Michigan Restaurant Association. Uh, and then in 2018, we sort of expanded and we did some merging and we became the Restaurant and Lodging Association. So we have, you know, obviously bars and restaurants uh, were, our, were our background, but then we added resorts, we added hotels, we added golf courses, uh, we, you know, added a more, a more broad hospitality group and, you know, really sort of merged the two biggest parts of this industry into one. And we have just over 5,000 members. 5,000 members of varying size. Like, what would be an example of your biggest members? I mean, our biggest members would be, you know, uh, groups like, I mean, obviously the, the Grand Hotel is a large member, um, and really almost the entire island is, rep- you know, is represented in our portfolio. Uh, we have a number of, you know, large chains like Applebee's and Outback and Buffalo Wild Wings, um, some McDonald's. And then, you know, anything as small as to your, your single independent operator who's, you know, doing everything from cooking to accounting to, you know, chief, chief operating officer and bottle washer. So large members, large and small. Well, you guys have just been clobbered in the last three to four months uh, by what's happened with the shutdown, stay-at-home executive orders of the governor uh, in confronting the coronavirus. And now things supposedly are starting to open up, although I keep calling a couple of my favorite haunts around Lansing, and it doesn't sound to me like they're open. And I keep 
reading and hearing that, you know, they're only being allowed to open with 50% capacity. Well, I don't even know how you can make any money, uh, 50% capacity, probably going to lose money opening up with that. So how do you confront all this? What's going on? So you're right. It's, you know, it's been a tough three months and, uh, you know, 74% of restaurants are, have, have said in a survey, they, they don't think they'll be profitable for, uh, for the next six months. Um, the industry as a whole has lost about $8 billion. A thousand restaurants have permanently closed their doors. Uh, 350 employees have been furloughed and about six of every 10 hotel rooms are empty. So opening up at 50% is a tough job and you're going to see some smaller places, uh, who, who choose probably not to do it, um, but with increased takeout, I mean, there is a way they can make some money. Uh, but really, this is our opportunity to show show not only, you know, the, the governor's office that we can do this safely, but show the general public uh, we can go, you know, this can be done safely as well. I went to a place last night in downtown East Lansing, and, you know, you had to have a mask on to walk in. They squirted some hand sanitizer in your hand the second you walked in, and they had tables limited to four, you know, no more than four, and they were all spaced out apart. So, you know, this industry was a vanguard for safety before this. We're continuing to be a vanguard for safety during all of this. Uh, but we realize that that public trust is going to be something that we are going to have to to gain back, and people are going to have to see see the increased protocols. But we're ready and willing to do that, and ready and willing to you know get back to full occupancy here, hopefully someday soon. Well, the tragic part of it is, as far as I'm concerned, is the onus seems to be on you guys to somehow as you say, earn people's trust back to come in. In other words, you, the shutdown was imposed from above, from outside your industry, uh, regardless of what you thought about it. And yet now that the powers that be say, okay, you can open up again, the onus is on you to somehow convince your own employees that it's safe to come back and work and that potential customers are safe to come in and Enjoy your product. I mean, I think things are almost backwards. It, it well, no, it's it's going to be a challenge. But you know, we have you know, we saw some of our members reinvent their business models overnight to increase takeout capacity and you know limit and and takeout offerings and have a a program where you can socially distance and walk in and and get takeout to go. So I mean, there are challenges involved in it. But at the same time, you know, while our members were not were not happy. Uh, with with the governor's actions, um, the vast majority of them understood them, um, and they you know understood that why they had to happen, and now are going to you know do whatever they can do at fifty percent to make money, and are look looking forward to getting open um, at a hundred percent because the last thing anyone wants to see is a second wave here. That will just absolutely cripple this industry. Do you think these changes that are being made, you say reinvent uh, business models uh, on the fly in the midst of coronavirus? Are they going to be permanent once coronavirus passes, um, or do you think things gradually over time are going to go back to kind of the traditional way that uh, the restaurant and lodging industry was able to do business in the past? I, I think gradually we will get there, but, I mean, I think masks are going to be masks and social distancing and, you know, hand sanitizer and increased sanitization are going to be a part of this industry for for years to come, but I mean, I, I think eventually we'll get back to a back to where we were, or pretty close to it. But it's it's going to be a while. It's you know, it, it's not going to happen anytime in the next few months. That's for sure. Do you think things like takeout and curb service may become a bigger part of most people's business going forward? 
It, it absolutely will be. And, and right now we think that number is probably 18 to 24 months is, is that curbside and to-go and increased to-go sort of flexibility is going to be a big part of business model. And even after that, it, it might be bigger than it was before coronavirus? Pro- probably. Um, and, and, you know, that's going to depend on age. That's going to depend on demographic. That's also going to depend on, you know, if you live walking distance to a restaurant, you might be more inclined to just, you know, go and walk and sit down and, you know, have a cheeseburger or something at your local spot. But, you know, if you're, if you're used to more rural just driving out, you might decide, well, if I can get everything I wanted, um, you know, including a, a cocktail or two, then I'll, I'm happy to do this and take it home and sit down at home and do it. Well, talking about that, there are a couple of bills that the legislature is considering that are going to help you out, right? They absolutely are. Tell us what those are. So the, the two big ones that sort of I think are, are for mass consumption would be uh, allowing cocktails to go from, from bars and restaurants so or, you know, or a distillery or something like that. So currently in Michigan, with the proper license, you can get a growler of beer or a bottle of wine, take it to go. Um, in Michigan, delivery of cocktails, even cocktails to go, is, is strictly prohibited. Um, however, 33 other states, have, are doing it and then, you know, have made some sort of change in their policy during during this outbreak. So we saw this as an opportunity to put this practice into place in Michigan permanently and just add flexibility to our members and really any, any bar or restaurant owner um, for their ability to continue to make some money during this. So, you know, if you go to your local Mexican place and, you know, get some enchiladas and some tacos for takeout and you want to get, you know, a, a, a jug of margaritas to go home with you and share with the family or share with friends and and you're more, you know, you will be able to do that under this legislation uh, if, if signed by the governor. What about social districts? That's another piece yeah. of legislation. So right? social districts is another way where uh, we borrowed this from the state of Ohio. Um, I, I don't love to give Ohio credit, but they did a very, <laughs> very good job on this. So this essentially would be, you know, if you let's say you take Albert Avenue in, in East Lansing, we'll keep it local. Um, the local city council would, you know, would vote on this and establish this and they would have sort of oversight of how it all works, but you could shut down a part of Albert Avenue and they could put some picnic tables up and you could walk into, you know, peanut barrel and get a drink and your friend could walk into Black Hat Bistro and get a drink and you guys could sort of meet in the middle at a common area and sit there and you want to get takeout food to get takeout food from somewhere uh, or just sit there and enjoy it. But it's a way to, you know, allow for some increased social distancing, allow for increased sales uh, of, of bars and restaurants, but also give people the option to say, well, I, I'd rather get, you know, rather go there. You'd rather go there. Let's go get our food and then meet in the middle. Would you be able to drink and eat in the street between restaurants and in these social districts too? Yep. So you would, what you'd not be able to do is you couldn't walk, you know, you couldn't get a drink from one restaurant and then walk into another different restaurant with that drink. That, that would not be allowed. But yeah, I mean, you could even, you know, if it's a nice night out, you know, you could, you could get a drink and just sort of walk around and, do some people watching and, and enjoy the enjoy the nice night. Um, I understand. Okay, listen, we're out of time. I, I hope that the uh, governor is receptive to this idea because I think she created a lot of the problem with the government shutdown of uh, business establishments and stay at home. Hopefully, uh, she'll sign these bills if the legislature send them to her. I want to we're, th- we're hopeful she we're hopeful she will. We've had some good conversations with her office about about her being in favor of this. Great. Okay, John McNamara, he is vice president for government relations, Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Thank you so much for being our guest, John McNamara. Thank you.
We'll be back next week with still more. 